Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast looks at, traveling through time with, H.G. Wells, popular culture professor Garen Roberts, who was awarded the Muncie in 2013, examines, Wells' appearances in Amazing Stories magazine. The presentation featured numerous examples of covers from Amazing Stories. Visit the Pulp Event Podcast page, at the Pulp.net, for a link to a gallery of covers. This was recorded on July 21, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016, in Columbus, Ohio. The thing about the illustrations we're going to see from the pulps today, some are primarily their exterior pictures, but there's some interior ones as well, some line drawings, some by Frank Paul, some by other people. Um, probably many of us have seen a number of these images in one context or another, and they're, uh, they're a great deal of fun. A lot of interesting things going on on them, even with the very first issue, which we'll see in just a, a minute or two here. Um, with H.G. Wells, there are scholars infinitely more studied on the topic than me. Uh, the life of Wells, which spanned about, well, 80 years, was, was literally, without pulling out the puns or cliches or whatever, was literally amazing. It was phenomenal. And um, so our focus tonight, not only the fact that he t would have turned 150 uh, next month, uh, it's also on his Amazing Stories uh, appearances. And what I came to find out, I knew about these, as, as Michael uh, suggested, Mike suggested, um, was that they were actually much more profound in American culture than, than I initially had envisioned. And maybe we'll see some of that as, as we go along here. I was telling somebody today, in, in some of your best studies and scholarship and research and all that kind of thing, something sort of emerges out of it that you didn't initially intend. And I think that happens a little bit and what I found here, at least in my limited experience with Wells. Probably one of the very best, if not the best scholars on H.G. Wells was a gentleman that lived almost 100 years. He published almost 70 decades, was a friend of PulpCon and PulpFest, and that's the late Dr. Jack Williamson. And Jack Williamson in the 1930s, when he did his doctoral dissertation, and, and you probably know what our dissertation is, um, is a book-length study. The book writing is no problem. It's the seven or eight cranky professors who don't like each other who take it out on your writing. That's what the doctoral dissertation is all I can tell you about that. Okay. Um, Jack Williamson knew H.G. Wells. He was considered in the 1930s as a young man, that being Williamson, one of the top scholars on Wells. And so when I think of all the different things that have been done and not done, um, I think of the guy that Steve Hafner celebrates in his press and that others of us have come to like through the years, that being Jack Williamson. Okay, so 150 years of H.G. Wells, 90 years of amazing stories, and we come to find out some interesting things here. Our focus here, with the, the big breadth of what was the life and a very, very varied and complex life of H.G. Wells, is in the mid-1920s that we're talking about today because, of course, we're interested in not only Wells but the Amazing Stories era. And for lack of a better term, this is good stuff. 
Okay. I'll read some of this uh, just real quickly. One of the big things you don't do in PowerPoint is put a lot of print. So of course they start out with a couple slides of print. Um, Wells lived uh, from September 21st, 19, or 1866, right after the Civil War in this country. Of course, he was English. Uh, to August 13th, 1946. So he had seen the conclusion of World War II during his lifetime. He published many, many things, a variety of things, and some of those that you would remember or, or see or hear, and we'll revisit some of these tonight, uh, were The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, uh, The War of the Worlds, okay, many, many others. And as Mike was telling us here at the beginning, the first 29 issues of Amazing Stories not only featured H.G. Wells' stories, but he appeared on every one of those covers. Nobody else ever was able to do that. And so there were 28 issues plus the first quarterly, the winter 1928. Um, I can write about the time my dad was born, who's still with me, I'm very glad to say, um, to April 26. Now, as Mike also suggested, Gernsback was still in control of Amazing Stories. And what we'll probably learn tomorrow, there's some other great, much better than my presentations on Amazing Stories coming up, although I've published a few things on Gernsback through the years for literary dictionaries and things like that. What we come to find out, and many of us know, is that Gernsback would ultimately lose control of Amazing Stories just after the first few years of his, his brainchild. Um, that's a very interesting story in itself. We won't go off on those details right now. Okay, let's look at some, some things here. Here's the quote that, that, that I kind of like, kind of emerges from this whole thing about Wells and, and Amazing Stories. There was a very famous uh, Canadian professor from the University of Toronto, and probably many of you have heard his name. His name was Marshall McLuhan. Somewhat controversial in the 60s and 70s, but boy, he was worth thinking about. His theories were very, very interesting. One of his big theories, which I think is, is fascinating and has tremendous merit, was a theory he called the theory of rearview mirrorism. And that was with the emergence of each new story type, each new genre, each new media form, the new medium or story type would draw on the best successes, the most profitable successes of the previous medium to guarantee at least some market share. So if you stop and think about it, some of the very first pulp magazines were what? Tony Tolan was telling us a little while ago, reminding us about Street and Smith originally started out as a dime novel publisher. Not many dime novel publishers other than Street and Smith actually made the transition to pulps. But a lot of the early pulp stories were the very most successful stories of dime novels especially in things like westerns and detective fiction, okay? Um, early television, 1948 network television, somewhere in there for people who could get it in the bigger cities, was what? It was reinterpretations and successes of famous radio shows like Suspense and others, right? The concept of going back and taking, creating some guaranteed kind of market, well, this is what Gernsback did in Amazing Stories and he plastered Wells' name on the cover of each of those first 28 plus the quarterly issues, okay? So it's interesting. Here's a quote that sort of says what, what he meant by a rearview mirrorism. It says, when faced with a totally new situation, 
we tend always to attach ourselves to the objects, to the flavor of the most recent past. We looked at the present through a rear view mirror. We marched backwards into the future. And the, as I've thought about this through the years, this is really, I think, very, very profound about media history, and it certainly applies to pulps. This was Wells at the time of his his real creativity in terms of speculative fiction. Now we know that the term science fiction wouldn't be coined until about 1930. We can read scholars like Sam Moskowitz and others who can tell you where the term came from and all of that. It, prior to that it was speculative fiction, scientific romance, and all kinds of other things. But this is what Wells looked like in the late 1800s as he's writing these stories, the 1880s to 1890s. Now these, these stories would originally appear in British magazines that were a little bit more slick than what we call pulp magazines. And we don't, Mike has a great thing on, on all our website stuff about where the term pulp comes from, name for the, the coarse pulp wood, acidic laden paper, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he's writing for a little bit more slicker quality, uh, if we can take a kind of an aesthetic evaluation and unfortunate judgment, which I don't always like, saying that one medium is better than another. Um, and, but this is what he looked like, okay? But that's not what he looked like when this stuff would appear in Amazing Stories. Okay, here's the first one. We've all seen this archetypal cover. I saw recently, in fact, I just bought a copy online. I think it was a mere $8 or something. Somebody did a facsimile edition of this volume. And if I can be so ornery, I'm very good at being ornery. I would give the reprint quality about a B average. It was really neat. It had everything I liked. It's facsimile, the whole deal, but they didn't clean up the pages. It is real dark, and you can, anybody who knows how to work a copy machine knows how to take the darkness out of yellowed pages. But anyway, that, that is available uh, via Amazon. This issue has always fascinated me for one very significant pet peeve that I had for 34 years as a professor. I'm not that old, believe it or not. I started when I was 22. Um, there's something on this cover that really irks the living hell out of me, if I can say so. Can you see what it is from where you're sitting? Can it? What's that? Can it be so close? Nope. Nope, that's, that's, that's good, though. But what is it? Can you see? Nope. It has nothing to do with the illustration or with the, 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 the colors. Nope, I love Jules Verne. Nope. Why the hell can't anybody spell Edgar Allan Poe's name correctly? It's, yeah, I, I don't expect you to be able to see it. It's A-L-L-E-N. No, no, no. You know, it's like you put up the crucifix in front of the vampire. No, no. That's not how Poe spelled. The greatest American, here's some opinion for you. The greatest American writer that ever lived was more instrumental in different types of genre writing, journalism, criticism, science fiction, mystery fiction, horror fiction, and you can't spell his name right? Oh my, but you know what? This isn't the only time it happens. <laughs> this is what the interior illustration looked like for the first reprint uh, in Amazing Stories. And again, Gernsback had to have some kind of a deal or pay for this stuff, but what brilliance on his part to use this concept of rearview mirrorism to really establish science fiction in this country. Again, in 1926, we didn't have a name for it in this country yet, science fiction. It wasn't, the term wasn't coined. And so he's, he's doing this, you know? 
And prior to this time, we all knew about the archetypal quintessential uh, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. And by the way, as our gentleman here, Michael, who won the prize tonight, pointed out before the presentation, sometimes variants and stories are better than the original. You know the story about Mary Shelley, right? When she first did the story between 1816 and 1818, it was a rip, snorting, great story that, that pulp fans would have loved, right? In fact, it's my favorite of the two versions. By 1831, she does a second version, right? She's taken herself a little too seriously, and she thinks she's literate with a capital L, right? I love Mary Shelley, don't get me wrong, but it's best to read the old version and compare it to the new one, because the old one has... You know what they say about Mickey Spillane? I was listening to him talk before his death out in New York City. And from 1947 to 1952, he had seven of the ten best-selling uh, books in the world in that period of about uh, five years. And some smart-ass in the crowd asked him, we're sitting out there in Manhattan at some big hotel for the Edgar Awards. I happened to be nominated for one that year. I was very blessed. Somebody said, well, why didn't you get the other three, Mick? He said, because I only wrote seven novels that, those, during those five years, you know. Um, but there's something that happens with, and you, you hear other writers talk about this as well, like, like a very successful friend of mine, Max Collins or whatever, that they start out with this tremendous, and I don't want to get off the topic too much, this tremendous vitality and energy, and then somebody tells them they're literate and they need to clean up their craft, right, in the effort to attain art. Well, it doesn't work that way, and some of the very best stuff is the oldest stuff. Somebody said to, uh, to Raymond Chandler one day, what if you took all those red herrings and misconnections out of the big sleep? And he said, there'd be no novel. He said, there'd be nothing left. Yeah. So, okay, let's look at, let's look at some H.G. Wells. And the second issue, The Crystal Egg, is a wonderful story. It's a short story. I like it. You might like it because it starts out in an antique store, right? Great fun, and there's this crystal egg that has this this portal to, well, I won't wreck the story. You've got to read it. There's Edgar Allan Poe again. Not the Poe I know, but the, some Poe is on the cover. We should mention Jules Verne, okay? Jules Verne, tremendous, very prolific French author. We know this, right? And we know that most of Verne's stuff, even though he's remembered today for some really interesting science fiction material, I love it all. I really love the Verne stuff, and there's some really wonderful reprints being done with nice clean trans translations the last 20 years. And the Verne Society has been instrumental in supporting that. Uh, but the vast majority of Verne stuff was adventure fiction, right? 70-80% of all the stuff he wrote was adventure fiction. And uh, so there's Wells again, and uh, oh, some great stories on this particular issue. <coughs> Another very famous archetypal cover. There's an interior illustration from The Crystal Egg. And again, we've seen a lot of these pictures before. There's the star. You know the short story of the star? I think it really must have influenced uh, the later novel uh, by uh, When Worlds Collide. It's about the impending doom. There's a star and everybody's. And there was a great time tunnel episode based on that one time, too, set in a Welsh mining community. And they think the world's going to end. This is sort of the beginning of all that kind of story for them. Wells was really important, not only in his earlier days in England, but in his reprints, in terms of articulating all kinds of different types and variants of science fiction. 
So you had the time travel story, you had the lost world, you had, you had all kinds of things. You had the, the mad scientist story, you, you had the invasion story, and it's pretty neat stuff, for lack of a better term. It's pretty neat, you know. Very readable, very, very readable. Did you know that in 1900, and I've always, this has astounded me for 20, 30 years, in 1900, at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, H.G. Wells was considered the smartest, most important social thinker in all the world. And you think about 1900, there must have been some pretty smart ladies and men at that time, right? But worldwide, he was considered, so it wasn't just his science fiction, he, you know, he wrote the outline of history, he wrote incredible things, he was very much respected, but in 1900 he was considered the smartest man overall on the planet. How do you judge that? I don't know, it's a matter of subjectivity and opinion, but that was popular belief back then. Oh, big bug, science gone bad, this is just wonderful stuff. Jules Verne again, Wells on the cover. You can't see it there very well again. Well, this is also a very good story, The Empire of the Ants. Um, I saw in the, in the dealer's room tonight as we're setting up that there were several dealers had some really nice editions, quite affordable collections of Wells short stories, and, and some of them you don't always see, but they're fun, they're good. Empire of the Ants, good material. Making sure I don't pace myself on the time here a little bit. There's Vern again, and there's H.G. Wells. Yeah. So the more and more I looked at this, I thought, you know, it's becoming really apparent. <coughs> we had some really neat reprints and some great authors. There were authors in this country that wrote some really wonderful speculative fiction. There was a, one guy who's so often forgotten, and Sam Moskowitz did a collection of his stories. Um, was a guy by the name of Edward Page Mitchell. And he wrote for the newspapers and stuff in the late 1800s, and he was really kind of an American version of Wells. Um, a lost master, very prolific, very important. But it just seems to me that in terms of the word archetype, an archetype meaning not necessarily the first, but the model upon which everything else is based. So Sherlock Holmes is the archetype of, of a classical detective fiction, right? He's not the first, but he is the one that is the measuring stick for everybody else. Wells provides kind of the archetype in his fiction of, of, uh, of science fiction. And, and he really, from across the pond, so to speak, gets American science fiction underway thanks to the insight of Hugo Gernsback. Gernsback's story is fascinating if you ever want to read his biographies and where he came from and how he was an immigrant and he was trying to sell um, batteries via catalogs and that kind of thing when he first started you know, modern electrics and all that stuff. You ever read that? Read about his history and he realized that his batteries sold better in the catalogs if he included some sort of fact-based science story. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very interesting stuff. And then Bernard McFadden becomes kind of the monster, the, if I can say the word, antichrist, right? And he becomes the big guy who causes a lot of grief for Gernsback. In the abyss. So here's where the fan comes out to me. I just start getting all excited. It, tell me this isn't a cool picture. This is, this is really neat stuff. This is what Wells would have looked like at the time of the reprints. Here he is on the cover of, of, of Time magazine. And so that's right about when all this is going on. 
Oh, you got to love the big bug motif, right? Boy, they would do that for years in the 1950s movies. This is the first installment of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And again, Wells is on every one of these covers. That's the second part. Here's a couple of interior pictures of some of the creatures and results of Dr. Moreau's less than ethical scientific practices. First Men in the Moon, in a few cases, Gernsback serialized some of the novels of Wells in, in the 1920s. I'm trying to remember who else is in this issue. There was a really neat, again, there's that word I'm overusing, neat, really wonderful lady from Illinois, and not a real lot is known about her. We're discovering more and more who published an amazing story. So you know who I'm talking about? This is the one I think that has the faith of the Poseidonia in it. Claire Winger Harris. She was a housewife in, 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 in uh, northern Illinois. And in the 20s, Fori Ackerman was the one who put me onto her, and I, I just fell in love with her story and her, uh, her personal story, and then her, uh, her writing. And I think this has the fate of Poseidonia in it. Good issues from cover to cover. Murray Leinster. It's pronounced Leinster, not Leinster. I learned that this summer. I uh, was fortunate Tom Roberts has me doing, uh, to do out this fall. We just finished an adventure collection of Murray Leinster's very first stuff before he did science fiction. His real name was Will Jenkins. But there's, you know, it's the first men in the moon, but there's a kind of an invisible man back there too, you know. This has a Burroughs story in it. Wow. Wells on all these covers. First Men in the Moon. Before we go any further, I need to thank Chuck uh, Welch for his excellent work at translating all this stuff. We sent it to him electronically, and he, he got it in real good shape for us, given what the material was I sent him. Yeah, oh man. And I know you've seen some of these pictures, right? Some of them are like, like old friends and stuff, but H.G. Wells again. Burroughs is starting to show up, and his stuff is, is not reprints at this point. A Merit, okay, probably some stuff from Argosy. I don't know what the Merit story is in there. There's a time machine. And if I remember correctly, this is the whole novel in this one. They, did, they didn't serialize this thing. They put the whole thing in there. Time machine. Wells again. That's a short story. The story of the late Mr. Elvisham. Wells, again, Merritt is showing up here, the Platner story. <coughs> and of course, that's the picture that's on your, uh, <coughs> the one we're wearing around our necks, right? If I haven't lost it already, there it is on the floor. Um, now, where do you see this on a weekly basis on TV? The Big Bang Theory, sure. It's, uh, this, this very illustration, this Frank R. Paul thing is in Sheldon and Leonard's house, right? Their apartment. All right, so it made the cover there. Here it's not on the cover. Now somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't this uh, one of the pieces of art from the Bob Lesser thing when we were in Bowling Green all those years ago? One of the originals. I may be making it up there on that one, so don't hold me to that. Do you remember some of us older timers? We're not that old, but when we were up in Bowling Green, must have been 20, 25 years ago. Um, and had all that great Robert Lesser stuff. 
Bob is still selling pulps over in England. I bought one from him a month or so ago. What were the worlds? <coughs> Interesting story, of course, we know that H.G. Wells was not related to Orson Wells. In fact, they even spelled their last names differently, right? But before he died in 1946, H.G. Wells um, met Orson Wells and they did a, a quite a lengthy radio show together. Have any of you ever heard that? Yeah, it's actually very, very good. And, and what I like about it is it goes on for a while. It's just not a short little, here he is, shake hands, goodbye. They actually, and there was kind of a mutual admiration society uh, between the two of them. They got along very well. Uh, and of course, Wells' story, Orson Wells' story is, is fascinating as well. Tony mentioned a touch of evil a little while ago, one of many H.G. Wells, um, uh, Orson Wells movies. But they weren't related, but there was this kind of this landmark meeting of the two of them in the last years of H.G. Wells' life. At Cummings, Garrett Smith. Thanks to some uh, pulp reprinters, again, like Black Dog and others, we're getting to see some more of that, that old lost Gene Christie and Tom Roberts and all the rest of them. Ray Cummings stuff and some Garrett Smith stuff. and It's all right. It's good stuff. And Grimsback's still on the masthead there. It's a wonderful cover. Story of the Stone Age is in that one. Wells is still on the cover. Boy, I don't know. That reminds me of a modern type movie. I don't know, like like something like I won't even say it, like like The Matrix or something like that. The Country of the Blind. Very very famous story with some famous lines quotes that people quote to this day out of it, you know. But here's Wells, and and he's uh, he's he's tightening up and bringing together some traditions and and, and Americanizing. You know what what we had, and there was stuff in Argosy. We're going to hear about that some more tomorrow. Right? I know Doug Ellis and others have some things to say. And um, I don't know. I can sit here and look at these pictures over and over again. And they just, they're fascinating. Here's the, <coughs> when the sleeper awakes. Okay. Um, the winter actually was issued in January of 1928. And um, by now, Jack Williamson had been reading uh, amazing stories for a good year or so. He picked it up with just a couple of issues into the run off the newsstand as, as a fairly young man. He was born in 1908. And, um, wow, good, good stuff. And of course, this story's been reprinted many times in hardcover and trade paperback and all that kind of stuff. Pollock and the Poro Man. This, this, this cover is always, that's a very good story, by the way, the flowering of the strange orchid, that's one you want to read as well. You know, the temptation for me is, oh, this is about that one. This is, I don't want to wreck the stories for you. But you've got to read them. They're very, very good. Very, very good. But this one is always fast. Top, the cover has fascinated me a little bit because we've got the Oriental Asian thing going here. And, of course, you know, part of the era, we're certainly not justifying it or whatever, but it was part of the reality of the day, the, the, the image of the, the stereotype of the yellow peril, the yellow menace, and all that kind of stuff. By the way, stop by Bill Maynard's table if you tomorrow. He's got the great stuff, I'm telling you. Fu Manchu and a lot of the imitators and all that. Plus, we discovered today that Bill's son looks a lot like Sax Romer in his early. <laughs> Check that out. It's a little spooky. Uh, I, I said to Bill, if 
if Mike starts sending you postcards from Limehouse, you might get a little worried, you know. But this is this one. This one has always fascinated me. This cover, I, I don't know what to make of it, and and, and it intrigues me, you know. But anyway, look at the beauty in that. See over there, we still don't have exactly the term science fiction. Gernsback has gotten us to science fiction, okay, but we're still not quite there. And now we're joined by David Keller. Such wonderful stories and folklore, some of it probably even true about all these people, you know. Story of Days to Come. Let's see, was that, was that the one there too? Yeah, that's part one. Here's part two. Great monster. The Invisible Man, one of two. That was broken into two issues. July 28th. Now we're coming down to the very end of, of Wells. And what happens then, let's see if we go, this is this famous cover. What's, what's interesting about this cover, do you know, or this, this issue? Well, I don't know if, it, if that's it or not, but there's a misconception about this. What, what's the, what's, that's not Buck Rogers. That's the first Buck Rogers story by Francis Nolan, but that's an illustration from the Doc Smith story. You got time for a quick Doc Smith story? Oh man, this is a good one. So you know, Doc Smith was a very bright man. Well, he had a doctorate and all this kind of stuff. He was a scientist, he was tremendously talented. And this is a true story. In the heart of the Depression in Michigan, I'd lived in Michigan for lots of years, a wonderful state. I know we're in Ohio now. I lived in Ohio too, and I love Ohio. So, you know, no worries there. But uh, there was a, a donut company in the 1930s called, and I don't think it's around anymore. It was when I first lived in Michigan, but the last 10 years or so we lived there, I don't think it was there anymore. It's called Dawn Donuts. And in the height of the Depression in the 30s, when $5,000 was worth having, it still is today, by the way, but back then it was really significant, Don Donuts came to Doc Smith and they said, we want you as a chemist to create the formula that's going to get our franchise off the ground. And he did. He made the, the formula for Don. See, that had nothing to do with anything, but it's kind of interesting story. Isn't it? Yeah. The moth. It's a, it's a funny thing. You know, we, we sometimes canonize authors. You, James Fenimore Cooper with The Frontier, the, the romantic story, you know. We, we canonize the Poe's and all these people. But sometimes we should actually read them. Wells is another person that said, oh, yeah, H.G. Wells, he was great. Don't know much about him. We've seen a couple movie adaptations. Time Machine is really great with Rod Taylor, and it is a good film. The Time Machine is in, in one of the Big Bang episodes and, and all this and that. But Wells is one of those people that you really should read, not just because they tell you to or because he's canonized and he's great. He, he really was. You go back and read him, and he's just really fun. Okay. This is one of our last pictures. This is the first time, the 30th issue of Amazing Stories, that H.G. Wells does not appear on the cover or in its pages. Now there's something going on in, in Amazing Stories at this time, and I'm sure the gentleman we're going to hear tomorrow talk about the early days of Amazing Stories will we'll probably address some of this. But Gernsback is struggling here because he's, he wants his stories to be 
scientifically based. They have to, in his mind, have some kind of basis in reality, some plausible way of thinking that, that they could actually happen, right? And so he's insisting, and what he does is he hires a number of medical and military people, Dr. David Keller, there's other ones, Miles Brewer, who's a, a doctor, so on and so forth, to add this scientific credibility with their names. And he, he puts the initials after their names, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he's really struggling with it. And here in this first issue after the Wells era, it's like there's this transition going to happen where he's going to have to really fight and reemphasize, uh, fight for this, this, this idea that there would have to be equal fact with the theory. There had to be some legitimate science in it. But he himself knew, and he had other magazines, and he wrote stories himself that were highly fantastic. He knew that that stuff sold, but he had kind of a, a conflict within himself, being a, a scientist himself in real life, this being Gernsback, <coughs> the marketer of, of different kinds of batteries, the guy who had been born and raised in Luxembourg and had new, you know, migrated to New York. Um, but there it is. That's the first, first issue where he's, he's not in there. And there's some kind of change happening. And it wouldn't be much longer. I couldn't tell you the exact date, but it's within a few months that he would, Gernsback would lose control of the magazine. Okay. That is more than enough for me. Does anybody have any questions or anything you'd like to add or say? Or <coughs> Yes, go ahead, please. I'm supposed to remember your name. Would you tell me, please, again? I sure do. For years, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say, as somebody who's really a fan of H.G. Wells and the Post, they should get a hold of Peter Haining's the H.G. Wells scrapbook. Yes, yes. I I own it. Yes. Sure, right. But, and some people say he's derivative of, of Finley, but I don't care. It's wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. He illustrates, he did so much stuff as well, and it was so, of such high quality. Yes, yes. So mm -hmm. I heartily recommend it. It is. Uh, the other, I do have two questions for you, though. Especially sure. That's right. Mm -hmm. they, they seem quite, I don't know, nonpartisan, unbiased, whatever. And you 
seem to have a rather negative impression of Dover as I might have gotten from some things I've heard about his other works, but sure. I don't know if you've seen these actual annotated. I'd be interested. Pretty good stuff, huh? Well, I would be you obviously are an academic uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot all the time. And also, there's an H.G. Wells Society in Britain. There used to be an H.G. Wells Society of the United States. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was at Joanne a few months ago before my health broke and, and all these things I've been to prepare for Pulp Fest that got mm -hmm. aside. I don't know if you know anything about that. I don't, but it'd be... They have quite a few publications mm -hmm. uh, that they still put stuff out now. Of course, they're going to have a, they're having a big year right now because it's the 150th That's right. the 70th That's of right. his death. Right. And I'm just curious as to what happened to the U.S. one. I was thinking it'd be wonderful if you could revive it. Mm-hmm. Even here, the way the <coughs> farmer people have their little song. Yeah, I love the farmer people. Wells had such an important uh, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's 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 good stuff, and and off on a tangent, the the society that I really think is wonderful these days is the Jules Verne Society. Those those folks are top rate. The work they're doing is the best that's maybe ever been done on on I, on I've Verne. Heard about them. I, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I would say uh, about Wells, and that is, is that I am by no means any expert on Wells. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm as much of a fan as anything. And I know about the early days of Amazing Stories, but um, there are a lot of people, including the late Dr. Williamson and other experts who know a lot more. But I love Peter Haining. I, I, I love his collections. I know some people might disagree with me. But he came up with the greatest stuff, and his Wells scrapbook is a dandy book. It's about like that, yeah. Anybody else have any questions? <coughs> you say, oh, you just made that all up. You're full of nonsense. No. <laughs> I actually believe all that stuff that I told you. I, life is too short to make it up. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very interesting, just the last thing or so to say is that I think it's really a, a stroke of genius on the part of Hugo Gernsback to draw on the legacy of Wells to really launch science fiction in this country. And that concept, once again, of rearview mirrorism by Marshall McLuhan is, is really kind of well, not to exaggerate, but it gives me chills. I, I think it's got a lot of merit to it in terms of media theory. Okay, well, thank you very much. You've been really wonderful. <laughs> thank you, Mike. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at the pulp. Dot net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.